Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is Nick Knight, photographer and founder of Show Studio. As well as creating glamorously kinetic and indelible images for British Vogue, Alexander McQueen and Kristen Dior, he has also worked memorably on videos for Björk, Lady Gaga and Kanye West, and his work has been exhibited at such international art institutions as the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Hayward Gallery. I visited Nick at Show Studio in Belgravia, London, to talk about his life and prodigious work output, as well as some of the things that inspire him. Hi Nick. Good morning. How are you today? Um, mellow. <laughs> That's a very good way to start the week. Thanks so much for coming on the Matches Fashion podcast. Pleasure. Now, we normally record at Five Carlos Place, which yeah. is the Matches Fashion townhouse up the road in Mayfair. Yeah. Today we're recording at your studio in... Down the road. Down the road. Near uh, Victoria, yeah. Um, and it's a hub and a hive of activity. There's always so much going on. Um, yeah. You record your panel discussions here. I think you do photo shoots. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, artist studio, so we do as much as we possibly can in it, from performance to broadcasting. Um, we do lots of interviews, so yeah, there's a lot going on here. And the whole purpose of Show Studio was to have somewhere which is a sort of platform which was free of commercial uh, motives, if you want. So it wasn't started to make a quick million off the internet or anything. Lucky, luckily, you didn't try yeah. and make a million off the internet. No, well, it's, you launched I think, it. It's a two thousand, wasn't it? When there was a lot of bubbles, um, yeah, internet bubbles, of, lots of internet yeah. bubbles. And I think there's a. I have a scepticism, and this is going to be in slightly hypocritical territory of the mixture of money and art. Um, I think it's slightly dodgy. I think it deforms the art. Um, so I wanted to do something because I work commercially. So I work for you know for people like Burberry or um, uh, Dior or. Longcomb or whoever. So I work for a lot of big commercial companies, which is fine. I understand my role within that. Um, I enjoy my role within that. But I didn't want everything I did to be solely to make some more money for somebody. Um, so I thought it should be something which allowed people to make things for the love of the art, whether that art is painting or sculpture or filmmaking or poetry or performance, whatever it is. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, I just finished Kanye West's uh, film, uh, Jesus King. So um, I start sort of going through, because of course we finished the film, then I also have lots of assets, which I'm starting to take stills from the film, and all that sort of stuff, so that takes time. Um, more projects with Kanye, um, so I work with Kanye pretty much constantly. Um, and then tomorrow I shoot the Fendi campaign. Mm. Um, so, you know, lots of different, obviously, and of course it's all the show studio thing we're doing, so at the weekend I'm feeling more photographing um, burnt butterflies. So we do lots of different levels of, of work. Uh, some is personal, like the burnt butterflies, but I think it's worth saying. Um, and others are very much part of what people, I think, would just think fashion photography does. So things like the Burberry campaign or the Fendi campaign or Tom Ford or whatever it is. Um, and then other things are more ongoing. So my relationship with Kanye West, for instance, which is more of a, a sort of art 
directorial or no, why make it professional? It's a it's a friendly relationship. So I advise him on things. I give him suggestions of artists he might like, whose work he might like. Um, I do films for him and um, generally sort of interact with him in a sort of creative, friendly, friendly way. What might people be surprised to know about Kanye that you wouldn't know from his public persona? Uh, he's very caring. Um, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't know that from his public persona. Um, I've said it before, but I find him very similar to Alexander McQueen, um, just in the, his speed of comprehension um, of a situation or, or a desire. Um, he's very genuine, very uh, incredibly uh, caring about humanity and uh, humankind. And perhaps that doesn't come across enough. Uh, I think people, you know, kind of allows people to read lots of different things into him. And I know him personally, uh, and have done for six years or so now, and I have a lot of respect and a lot of love for him. So mm. nearly all the people I choose to work with are very different from me, and that's why I enjoy doing the work. I enjoy um, finding out what other people's visions of life are and other people's um, feelings um, and how they see the world. Um, I think it helps you shape how perhaps you see it, but trying to understand how other people see it, even if they've got very different views from you, I think is helpful and interesting. So a little bit sort of, you know, the, the way that photography is a passport into the world. It allows you to photograph anybody from a prostitute to a prime minister, from a minister to a minor. It's just, you know, anybody is available to you to photograph mm. and therefore to interact with. Photography is just communication, so you're, you're really just in some way having a, a conversation with somebody when you're photographing, but at quite a profound level. Hmm. Did, um, I don't know if Tom mentioned this to you when we were organising this podcast, but I, normally we have a format to it where we talk, ask, I ask the person I'm interviewing about some things that mean something to them. Yeah. We have a cabinet at Five Carlos Place that we, we sort of, in an imaginary way, put, put them in. I don't know if he mentioned it to you, yeah. but um, maybe he did. And if he did, I was wondering what was something you wanted to talk about. Well, there are lots of things. Um, perhaps the... It's very hard because I was thinking of talking to my son about this on the way in. It's not very hard. You go one of two ways. You would talk about spiritual things, which things which are important to you or actually is the things that really inspire you. Or you talk about nice things that you can have in your life. I'm not in favor of materiality, so I don't like the idea that we should encourage people to have more and more possessions and more and more things that they have to buy to have in their life to make their life better. Where the life actually is incredible as it is, and it is only really the sort of, you know, the mixture of our chemical balance and our you know, our, um, our uh, desires that create enormous amounts of inspiration in us. So I can be driving through London on a Sunday morning and the sun shines and you've got the right bit of music, you know, something for me from the 1970s, mm. uh, from some obscure band from Detroit or somewhere, some bit of deeply felt soul music, and I'll be transported to heaven um, much more than if I, you know, went out and purchased an expensive painting and hung it on my wall. So I'm slightly shy away from the sort of idea that one should encourage people just to get more and more material things around them. But, you know, that's... Again, it's like the thing, the comment I made about you know, not being completely at ease with money and art combining. You know, I've made a reasonable amount of money in my life and I spent a reasonable amount of money in my life. So I don't live the life of a sort of Buddhist monk. Um, but I do find that if one is honest with oneself, the things that give us joy are very simple and not particularly almost the opposite, really, the sort of things one imagines. You know, you say, oh, if I only could have that bag or that car or that house or that 
holiday or that whatever it is and actually are they the things that really make us feel that we're alive does that make you uncomfortable when you're doing fashion shoots or no. i think they're opinions um i think these, these are all opinions that one should continue to think through you know of course there's a certain amount of joy of of you know if you go down to the tate and see a beautiful sort of i don't know sculpture or painting you, know, you might think oh that looks so lovely my if only i could have that pre-raphaelite or that richard long or you know whoever it is in my house that made me so much happier i'm not sure they do um and i think the artist doing them is probably more satisfied um than the person i think it's taking away the vision of them and the idea from them rather than the possession of them which is better hmm. um so i'd i you know but they're unresolved questions you know life is full of questions that don't always have exact answers to them or make complete sense so you strike me that as you as an optimist i was you've spoken mm. a lot you get associated a lot with being a, a tech a technology person i guess because of show studio um, yeah. even though i know you've also said that you're not as interested in the actual um in the cameras and the tech as, as the actual imagery that it captures yeah um I was wondering if that's correct, though, in terms of all this doom and gloom about um, technology, where it's taking our social media platforms, encouraging yeah. horrible um, things to happen to people, AI, and it's taking over it humankind. Right? And you seem to see it as something that's very much moving people forward and a cause for celebration rather than... Yes, I do. Um, I think it's easy to scaremonger and, and financially profitable for um, gossipy-based scaremongering um, tabloids and the like. Um, so I think there's a certain amount of a it sells more newspapers or sells more or gets more people to look at your um, news site if you say oh it's it's all frightening and terrifying and we're all going to be overtaken by robots. Um, the humankind is incredibly resourceful um, and incredibly um, uh, uh, brilliant um, and I have a great optimism in humankind. Um, evolution is something that is always for the better. Things don't evolve for the worst. Um, so a combination of, yes, but probably basic optimism and a fascination with our capabilities as human um, will lead us to where we need to be. Um, we're not going to, um, I don't think we're going to evolve into something which isn't beneficial for us. And if the future is that we are now immortal because we live forever on the internet, then so mm. be it. Um, I'm not in any way fixed to one way of being. I don't see why we should presume that men are men, women are women. I don't presume why that we should have to have a physical um, being to be the only representation of ourselves where we all know it's emotions that control us and our body is merely a, a vessel. Um, so all those sorts of things don't make me think that things like AI are negative. Um, it's a product of human, uh, you know, human uh, intelligence, um, the product of um, our ability to be able to understand incredible problems and to be able, you know, I think we are so, I think, scratching the surface of who we are, why we're here, what we, you know, what we exist for, all those sorts of things. So I think to try and be scaremongering about the future um, isn't isn't the best way. I think then you just let the military and the pornography industry push technology further forward. And I think um, really the advancing of technology and our, our sort of, you know, into human relationships through the use of technology should be pushed forward by artists and not by the military, business or pornography. 
um, you know, where you've got money, death and sex are the only motivations of kind of advancing a society. And I think, uh, although money, death and sex are part of society, I don't really think that they should be the only causes. So I think poetic, artistic and uh, entirely higher levels of, of human um, endeavour should be what pushes uh, technology further forward. Mm -hmm. You asked me, well, part of the premise of this talk is things that inspire me. In 1988, I started to design a house to live in with the architect David Chipperfield. Um, and so in this essence, um, I live in a very inspirational space. I had to fight um, to have that house built against the neighbors in the street. Um, people were very uh, upset that I was built. It's a, it's a mock Tudor um, enclave in West London. Um, mock Tudor is exactly as it sounds, mock Tudor. Um, and we were building something which was modernist and optimistic and about the future and about sort of breathing a, a sort of different dynamic for you. So the rooms have proportions which are inspiring and not compromises of Tudor houses. Um, anyway, not um, to be negative about it, we created a an amazing house. David Sheffield's a brilliant, brilliant architect um, and has since worked with me on, on other projects. Um, so I live in a very inspirational space. So one of the premises of this talk is that what inspires me, mm. and of course I wake up every morning in one of the most inspirational spaces that one could wish to have in, because it was built for me and around me and by an incredibly talented and very clever man, um, a very clever architect. So that's an inspiration. However, the and not to dwell on it, but just to put it a little bit into context about fear of the future, the adverse reactions from the neighbours seem to be that it didn't fit in which, of course, is a weird thing. Why? So we should all dress the same. We should all have the same car. We should all have our gardens the same, should we? So why should we all fit in? Why is mirroring something else beneficial? Um, I, human eye tends to be a little bit happier with repetition than it does for, for discord, but um, I don't see that it's a, a way of life or, or something we should hand down to our children as a way of, of um, saying this is the future, that actually it's a past. Um, people who will not understand um, that, that every generation needs to make its mark and needs to be say, it's, this is us. We're not just continuing what our parents did. We're not just continuing what our grandfathers or our grandparents did. We're doing something new. So the future is incredibly important to give people satisfaction and a reason to, to be alive. Um, and the sort of reactionism against the house was a sort of, it doesn't fit in. Um, it should be somewhere else, like where? Um, and this sort of fear of anything different. And I think throughout my career, I faced that quite a lot. The sort of, um, instead of trying to understand the future in a positive way, a sort of dumbing down of the future and it turning from what it was in the 1960s, which is kind of optimism, into a sort of, you know, tabloid-led negative towards the future. Um, which, you know, we no longer live in the same country we lived in 50 years ago. And we, know we are no longer the same society. I'm on the phone this morning um, posting a picture to people in Mexico, to people in Turkey, to people in Russia, to people in Australia. I live in a global, you know, in a global communication. So why should I be in any way um, held by national, physical land landscape barriers and landscape? It's, it's not how I feel at all. I I'm incredibly unnationalistic. I do not consider that it's a good trait in people. Um, and I think it goes to do to do with fear. Most things that are bad in our society are to do with fear. And so I do not fear the future. And how do you feel about people taking photos on their phone when so much when that's your 
profession or image image creation? Um, I think that the whole idea that democratization of image making is allowed through a phone couldn't be better. I don't know what you're like as a photographer or you're like as a photographer, but you know the fact that you can now express yourself very easily was before you'd have to get a camera and learn how to work it, which you probably wouldn't, and learn how to develop film, which you probably wouldn't. You know, it means you wouldn't take images. Now you can. Mm-hmm. I think it's like saying, "Well, you know, we're very upset because the the biro, the ballpoint pen, was invented and actually wanted to keep to the to, to the <laughs> quill." You know, it's it's a sort of it's an amazing thing to mm-hmm. be able to everybody to be able to start to articulate themselves visually rather than just using words and, and letters. I think to be able to create images to describe our future is, is amazing and that should be encouraged. So I don't in any way, in no, not an iota of me do I feel that it's a negative thing. It's actually totally positive. The idea that a photographer is a good photographer because they can afford some equipment that other people can't afford, that says nothing about the understanding of photography. Um, can we talk about your book, Skinhead, mm. um, which you published in 1983, I think when you were still studying at... Um, mm. Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design. Mm. No, I was I was born up in West London. I brought up in West London, uh, but I moved quite quickly to my father was with the RAF at the time. He was posted up to Cambridgeshire, and then we moved to France after that. And blah, blah, that's a long story. Anyway, just to try and get back on yeah. track. Um, throughout my sort of school years, I thought vaguely in the back of my head, and mostly because my mother insisted that I would be a doctor. But I thought it was a good thing to be, and I still regret to be honest. In some ways, I didn't see my studies through. Really. Um, well, being a doctor is always, you know, people are, get ill all the time, and I think there's a certain amount of, you know, one can argue that as a you know, fashion photographer or a fashion image maker or an artist, I'm not sure how much use one brings to society. So I think, you know, I could argue it. I'm not saying it's one way or the other. But I think you could, you could argue that being a, a doctor was entirely beneficial for society um, and rather than creating false desire <laughs> would actually make people better um so but no i had no application i had no desire at the age of sort of 17 18 so um i didn't want to do that and photography actually seemed to me pleasure um it's, as, as we'd mentioned i sort of borrow my father's camera i go out into the streets of cambridge um which sounds awfully lofty <laughs> and photograph people who i like the look of um and again that's putting it in a nice way um it allowed me to socialize and so that, that felt like it allowed me to live um, in a way that was previously perhaps wouldn't have been so adventurous. So I was, yes, getting that brings us neatly to Skinhead. Yeah. Um, I photographed Skinhead. Skinheads was, a, and it goes back to the early 70s when I got back from, from um, living in Belgium. Um, and of course, youth culture in Belgium is very, very different to post-industrial Britain, um, where we had through our class system and a whole bunch of other different social factors, very, very marked youth cults, which were um, to do largely with, you know, class to do with music you listen to to all those sorts of things and I got back and I was very much in the spirit of um, you know Woodstock and at the age of 10 I wanted to grow long my hair long and, and kind of be sort of you know pot smoking and kind of generally free and all those sort of things at the age of 10 um, and of course that wasn't Britain with school uniforms and skinheads and everything else and it had a big shock on me I was surprised by this but the weird thing is you end up loving the things perhaps you first hated and so as much as I was sort of very, when I first got back, and the very, because I got back from Belgium at the age of 10, so the first two or three years I was in Britain, I, uh, local comprehensive school, and just, 
you know, school uniforms, I found every way to change. I mean, yeah, anything. <laughs> so my school uniform was, if I went to Hinchinbrook School, which still exists, I don't think they've got the same, same school uniform. My school uniform was a sort of astroturf green. It was the only colour that didn't exist in nature. The <laughs> shade of green doesn't exist in nature. And the only shade of green absolutely guaranteed to make you look sexually unattractive. Um, so it was a sort of a fight against that um, and a fight against all that weird sort of youth cult thing. Uh, but at the time, you know, most kids were more, especially in sort of low middle class and working class backgrounds, were much more inclined to be of a skinhead type disposition, one could put it without something too academic. Um, so most kids, if they were in support or whatever, they'd be more that sort of look. So if you had a class of 30 school children, probably 20 of those would be, you know, skinheads or look like skinheads, not hard, hardcore, but that sort of thing. Very few of them would be wanting to be a kind of hippie, which is where I was kind of going. Um, you know, there was, you know, and it's like punk. Punk started in the middle of the 70s, and it was like, I think in Cambridgeshire, there was one punk, or in Huntingdonshire, there was one punk. Um, so some of these youth cults that appear to be very broad were not. Skinheadism was. It was kind of how working class youth looked, to be honest. And it was a fairly healthy mixture to be honest, of Jamaican rude boys. This is its origins in the 1960s. Jamaican rude boys and dance hall um, and a sort of, you know, British working class weird rejection of anything fashionable. So after the sort of, you know, the younger brothers of mods, you know, became skinheads because they won't be like their older brothers because their older brothers were mods. So, and their older brothers were very into kind of the Italian suit and everything else. So skinheads wore everything that was lumpen and kind of like their father's working clothes. So the kind of boots and the braces and the collar shirts and all that sort of stuff and that kind of utilitarian, almost brutalist rejection of fashion. It's actually picked up again by punk in its sort of nihilism 10 years later. But that's of course then metamorphoses or whatever the right word is, changes gradually because fashions do change into a much more, you know, much more uh, refined or, or referential look. So you have skinheads in the Actually, by then smoothies by kind of 1970 who were wearing you know kind of suits um exactly like this button-down shirts carrying umbrellas max all this sort of thing you know and it's how i dress now um so i really haven't changed um in in that way um it's funny the things that you you discover in your puberty that become definitions mm -hmm. of how you are all the way through life so how did you fall in with the skinheads oh i didn't really fall in with them um I went through various phases in the beginning of the 1970s. As I said, everything I thought, oh, well, I want to sort of, you know, be at Woodstock when I was 10. And by the age of 12, I wanted to be um, much more glamorous and kind of, you know, people like David Bowie were starting to appear on the scene. Mm. Um, and so starting to wearing makeup. And you, one has to remember, especially at matches, one has to remember that in the 1970s, there were nowhere you could buy fashionable clothes if you were a young man. You know, there wasn't, and certainly in sort of, you know, the the... the uh, countryside in sort of rural Britain. I grew up in a uh, between two little towns. One was called Huntingdon, and one was called St Ives. And neither of them had a fashionable shop in them. Um, they had a place you could buy your school uniform. And I think in St Ives, um, half of the store was for the school uniform, and another half of the store was for fashionable clothes which of course you know say people who bought school uniform you can imagine what fashionable clothes were so the only place you really could get clothes which are in any way fashionable is to make them yourself or to customize things so you would go to the army navy store and that was kind of the thing so that's where sort of i was um and when david bowie started appearing on the scene so i was wearing and i remember being incredibly influenced by um uh, the visconti film um death in venice and tadzio being the character in that sort of beautiful boy 
And I thought, oh, that's, you know, there's something in there for me in this sort of, you know, transsexual kind of, you know, so I had my, I had my hair bleached and I wore makeup and I wore a sailor suit and I got beaten up. This is what you do. In rural Britain, you, you dress up and get into a scrap. <laughs> so you'd go out on the bus on the, on the 151 to Cambridge and meet a bunch of, you know, football hooligans and who would take one look at you and that would be it. <laughs> do you think that, what's happened to that style tribalism? Has it just gone online? I don't know, I'm 61. <laughs> I don't really have the same issues. I don't tend to get on a 151 <laughs> bus to Cambridge anymore dressed up as a sailor. So I would find oh. out, you know, who's going to fight me. Surprise so, me. I um. have a... <laughs> issue with authority I mm. I only realized more or less as I grew up that I would absolutely have a problem with authority mm. and I think at the time it was pushing against anything and everything so if somebody said you can't do it I did it um and it was and I guess in the positive side it means you get a lot of self-conviction um and you get a lot of confidence but that meant I would run up against anybody who was up for running up against so whether it would be a bunch of football hooligans or whether it would be whoever mm. I would just you know, put myself in a position of collision so, but that was a, a moment for me where actually I started to find dissatisfaction in that very flamboyant form of dressing. And I right. started to look for something more important and I found dissatisfaction in kind of white rock music. Right. Um, and so by 1974, I was desperately looking for somewhere else to be in terms of my identity. Um, and I found it weirdly in, in Northern Soul and, and black dance music and those sorts of things. Um, and that's sort of where I started, and that's what got me into skinheadism again later in the 1970s. Because so I sort of rejected punk when it first came along, so it just seemed to me too flamboyant. And I wanted to get something which was much harder. And I noticed how, in the fights on the King's Road, that point zero 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 one of your listeners will know of, um, the fights which raised down the King's Road between the punks and the Teds, on both sides there were skinheads. And I thought, well, that's where I want to be. Um, and so I started dressing like that, I guess the end of the 1970s. And it seemed to me a way of sort of sticking up two fingers at any form of, of authority <laughs> whatsoever. I, I just was an awkward person. I probably have been all the way through my life. Why are you so, why, why are you awkward? Well, so, I don't know, sort of dissatisfaction, dad? sorry? Your dad? What's your, what's your, no, my dad was a lovely chap. Both my mother what and my father. Fight? What were you fighting against? Cambridge? Anything that came my way. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Cambridge is a lot to fight against yeah. Cambridge, I think. Um, growing up in rural Britain, having nothing to do, I mean, anything, anything. Um, I know my father, just to, to, my father and mother were both, my father was a psychologist, uh, my mother was a physiotherapist, can't even speak. Um, and my father um, became involved in a sort of diplomatic corps and was a physiotherapist, was a psychologist um, for NATO. So that's why we're in, that's why we're in, um, <clears throat> that's why we went to Paris and then to Brussels. And I went to Paris in 1966 and 1967. We left because General de Gaulle decided he didn't want to be part of NATO anymore. But just at the time, the 68 riots were happening. So they were sort of brewing. We left in November 67. And at that time, there was still just unrest in the streets. There were sort of huge groups of kind of, you know, uh, upset students and workers and stuff pouring into the streets of Paris, which all came to a head in, uh, in May 68. Um, and I remember my father, uh, we had a, a Citroën, uh, CX, CX or DS, I can't remember. It was one of the early Citroen cars, and it had just come off the factory lines. So it was quite brand new looking, and it had the diplomatic corps number plates on them, which are orange and green. So you can spot those a mile off. They look like <laughs> anything else. Um, and we were surrounded by a group of kind of, I guess, they're probably students. I don't know, just a group of people who were uh, uh, manifesting, um, and uh, they started rocking the car. And my father was very scared, very worried about it. 
I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> Great. There's lots of exciting Smacked things. Smacked at last. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was, it was a funny time, but it's sort of Paris in the 1960s did deeply inspire me in the end throughout my life. I, mean, I learned to speak French, not in Paris, but I learned to speak French in Belgium. We stayed there for three years and I got chucked into the local school and therefore had to sink or swim linguistically. So I picked up French within six months. And um, uh, those times, I remember my mother going to a, a new little shop in the left bank called Rive Gauche, um, you know, which is Saint Laurent's shop, you know, and, it was that, and coming back with a sort of uh, a, a turquoise mini dress and feather boa and, you know, all that sort of stuff, and then going to NATO cocktail parties where the sort of, you know, the higher echelons of kind of diplomatic life and military life were there and seeing NATO and those sort of, you know, it, it, it was a sort of amazing time to be growing up. Um, but I was six, so you know, I'm not <laughs> saying I was particularly involved, but it, those things tend to have some yeah. effect on you. Um, and, I, you know, I've come out with a love of people like Goddard and French intellectualism and, you know, all the kind of writers and, and, and the image makers and the filmmakers of the 1960s. I have a real deep-seated love for the desire for intellectual pursuit of the 1960s uh, and the desire for the future uh, and the rejection of authority from the 1960s. So I guess, all you know, and you have the civil rights movement, you have a lot of protest movements um, throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, and I guess I got, I got sort of inspired by those as well. Um, so I'm not going to play up on my anti-authoritarianism, but I do like things that are changed, and I don't mm. like restriction. Um, so I guess it's libertarianism. I suppose that's helped you in your work a lot, because your work did, has, does feel very like it's reacting against something, whether it's when you first started shooting for Vogue and it was kind of framed as this react, as a um, as a reaction to grunge, which mm. was a movement that had gone before, which was, that was in the early 90s. Mm. Um, so yeah, maybe that's something that comes through in your work a lot well fashion is about change yeah so anything that is fashionable today is unfashionable tomorrow do you like that yes yeah it gives a certain dynamic to mm. um to the work which i think isn't present in many other art forms which is why i've always really sort of worked within fashion as an art form because mm. i like that speed of change i like the way that it stops you resting on your laurels i like the way that it makes you completely and uh always reconsider your work and look at what you're doing and how you're understanding things um so yes i like this the, that in fashion i like the fact that you can say well I, you know i know i'm fashionable this month but i know it's a facto i'm out of fashion next month and i'm gonna have to work to get back into fashion and i'm gonna have to work to become to make my viewpoint fashionable again make my viewpoint something that will create this sort of weird desire that we have to look a certain way and to be a certain way and how you know this season you know the stand on the collar is high next season it'll be low and wearing a collar which is high next season will feel awful yeah so fashion's very very strong motivation mm. it's a sort of primary force within every society and you can see that by societies that do not allow freedom of personal expression through fashion so that's the best or the most common way that dictators control their populate populations <laughs> to restrict their ability to say what they think yeah, and in the middle of the 1970s, it was very clear in Britain um, that, you know, punks would write across their chest, you know, how to satisfy. They were with everything and anything. And it showed a sort of, you know, a way of dressing to say, I don't fit in. I am not part of your values. I'm different from you. I have my own identity. I reject everything you say. And that's important in fashion. It goes right back to... Yeah. Um, that reminds me that of a word, um, bouleversement, which I think you mentioned when I was reading about your collaboration and work with John Galliano, which was something that he was um, keen on. Yeah, bouleversement. Um, 
is the idea of sort of, you know, whipping the carpet out from under you and everything being flown up in the air, slung up in the air and coming down in a kind of random mm. way, uh, which is very much the way John worked. He went to Dior at a time in the mid-90s when the whole house had been sort of sold off for licensing and was really only seen in duty-free lounges and was pretty um, soulless after being one of the most elegant houses in the world um, in the 1950s and 60s. And, of course, they'd just sold up every cheap license they could get their hands on. And John went in there with the idea of restating it as the most elegant brand in the world, which he started to do. And that's what I first got involved with him. And so we'd have sort of, you know, these corseted dresses with very, very high collars. They're sort of almost sort of the tribal collars, which the Maasai collar, which doesn't allow the woman to put her head low. So it's incredibly restrictive. Um, but to force an elegance on it, to force a posture, to force a, a, a way of being, um, and say, this is where we're starting. And once he'd done two seasons of that establishment, and the references we had at the time were people uh, like Louis Icard, um, who was sort of the boudoir artists of the turn of the century, um, who were sort of, you know, their the drawings are incredibly delicate and refined, and they looked more towards Baldini um, for his second collection. Uh, Baldini is a, a, a painter, uh, in my mind, a, a fantastic fashion painter. Um, as you compare him to his contemporary Singer Sargent, where Singer Sargent's portraits are stiff and devoid of any sort of sexuality and devoid of any life other than sort of a repressive kind of version of it. Um, a Baldini, uh, Giovanni Baldini's work is full of life, full of sexuality, full of movement, full of dynamics, full of a sort of joie de vivre and a kind of passion and a excitement and the glitter glitters and the sequins flash the light and the, you know the silks catch the, the 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 movement and all that sort of thing. It's an expression of fashion, so beautiful. There's seldom, I think, a fashion illustrator that's matched Baldini. Um, so movement is incredibly important and that dynamic to get across the life of fashion. You know, fashion. Has, is an expression that has to be feel full of life and to feel full of energy and full of desire and full of passion and all those sorts of things. So I set about working with John to establish the sort of visual code for the House of Dior, which first of all is re-established those things. So we, as I said, we looked at the boudoir art and then we looked at the second season, we looked at Baldini, and then we just literally bouleversé. We absolutely threw, the, the, threw the, all the values up in the air um, and it's just enjoyed ourselves as randomizing them and picking them up and re-expressing them. We looked at Antonio Lopez as a fashion illustrator. Um, incredible, incredible illustrator from the 90s. You know, but that sense of movement that they had is, is so exciting. And that's what I always i am looking for in my pictures, that sort of sense of a, of a sort of passage of time. It isn't set. It's a very much a sort of Baldine against Sargent. It's very much that idea that it's an expression. It's, it's a sort of... It's a, it's you know, it's a movement. It's a, it's a gesture. It's a, a flirtation. It's a, it's a desire. It's a, you know, it, it's something which isn't set in time and doesn't move. Sorry, um, it's something that isn't kind of you know solid. It's something which is about the the, the you know the, the the ephemerality of desire, which is beautiful, and light and and you know in in some way, very much how we live and very much to do with speed and and. Um, to do with a sort of excitement and about all those sorts of things, which are which are which are things about movement. Mm. How important is the model to you? Does have there, crucial. There are certain models. I mean, you worked a lot with Giselle for those images. Um, uh, crucial, crucial, crucial. As a person that's, that's carrying the narrative, as a person that's carrying a, the role. Is there a certain type of person who you prefer to photograph? 
no I, well I mean, yes people who want to be photographed um, it's very hard to, to get a good picture of somebody who doesn't want to be there um, and is finding the corset too tight and is finding the shoes too high and is finding the you know the, the, the whatever it is if you if you look through the camera and the person does not look like they're they want to actually be there. It's really, really hard. I find the whole thing very embarrassing. I just want to stop. Um, but models, and there are some models who are just so brilliant. And you know, I've always championed you know, the model over the photographer in many ways. The photographer gets an awful lot of recognition for the picture, but half of it, at the very least, comes from the model, and I'd say a lot more, to be mm. honest. You know, if you look back at some of those amazing models of the 1970s, you know, and how they would move, and you know, it's interesting. Some, some, you know, photography and fashion imagery has been so important in defining our culture and a lot of it is to do with you know, so much of it is to do with the model so yes models are, are really a really really huge part of it and some of those girls and those boys um, really can, can can take the narrative that is in the piece of clothing already and express it in such an amazing mm. way that's what Kate's so good at Kate you know, Moss, that's, Kate Moss yeah. that's what Giselle Bunchen was so good at that's what some, you know, some of the sort of contemporary models are so great at is being able to understand what that piece of clothing is about and how to project that. Um, and so it's a it's an incredibly important ingredient in it. Mm. What what effect when those just going back to those Dior images? Do you remember what the effect was when they came out? I'm just thinking about the reaction to them. Yeah, the well, the first ones as I say were very much based on painting, um, and they were a little bit of a shock and didn't look like they come from anywhere else. Mm. It's always good to do something that doesn't look like it's. Yeah. part of anything that's going on at all to come from completely left of field um, and then the, when we so the visual language that I tried to create with John um, I, I'll try and explain it a little bit technically but if you look at a, a fashion illustration you can see the proportions in the fashion illustration I think it's a, the head fits 13 times into the body or 11 times into the body so it's a very elongated proportion and a lot of fashion illustration and we we're trying to get that photographically so to do that I used an incredibly wide angle lens almost a fisheye and we'd sort of it's hard to describe but we'd sort of bend the model around the circumference of the lens so it was very much excuse me um, it was very much the idea that you would sort of elongate the model through the 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 the, um, the the dynamics of the lens or the uh, the, the, the optics of the lens, sorry. Um, so we you know created these totally sort of versions of, of photographic illustration, if you want. So we changed um, you know this is just through the lens. This isn't in Photoshop afterwards or anything. This is literally just using a wide-angle lens and being able to work out what position and what height it should be at, so the model is stretched. If you imagine looking at your reflection in a Christmas ball in a sort of yes a, a, a glass sphere, um, if you put that above you, your head will appear big, your shoulders will appear big, and your body will taper off, and you'll appear to be reduced in stature. If you do it at the same lens and put it down by your ankles and look up at you, your legs become incredibly long, you know, your body becomes incredibly long, and your head is tiny at the top, so you get stretched right up. Now, that's what a lens does to somebody. So that's why I do have a problem, I'm sidetracking here, where people say to me things like, oh, we should, have, you know, we should say that it has been photoshopped. Well, you should also say what lens you have on then. You know, should say what lighting you have, because those are things much more fundamental in Photoshop that change how a woman's body looks. So you know, the, the height you hold your lens and what lens you have makes an enormous amount of difference to the shape the body is represented at. Um, really, the, the, there's a, such a huge misunderstanding of photography, uh, image making in general, which is why you know, early on I was so absolutely definite that the democratization, democratization mm. of imagery is really important for people to understand how images are created. Photoshop's got nothing. It's it 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 is not as important in any way as the lens you choose and at what height you have the camera, and yet you have these ridiculous things coming out now saying, "Oh, we should say it's been Photoshop." 
course it's been photoshopped. <laughs> yeah, it's like say, and we should say well, it's been through a let through a camera. Yeah, it's been through a camera too, and through a lens, and that distorts how lights come. Yeah, of course it has. You don't go to a film and say, well, I want to, I want, I want Disney or Pixar to write to me which one. Of the, you know, <laughs> everything on Pixar's fake. Everything in fashion photography, everything in photography is fake. Every single photograph taken is not a fact; it's an f- opinion. That's what photography's about. It's about artistic opinion. So it's never ever real. It's my thoughts against your thoughts. Mm. You can look at this room now and say it's depressing and and, and absolutely um, claustrophobic. I can look at it and say it's space age. We have a different opinion, and we're perfectly entitled to our opinions. And our, if we have a camera, we would express our opinions through our camera. So photography is never about reality. It's mm. never been about reality in its life. Anyway, and you, I sidetracked. Yeah. It's a rant. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I was just gonna. You've done projects in the past that have fo- that have included loads of different body shapes and types: able-bodied people, disabled-bodied people, overweight people. What are your thoughts on the current vogue for wokeness and diversity in fashion? Entirely overdue, long overdue. Um, it comes, I think, a lot through the generation of people that I guess were. Um, the generation of people I was talking to when I was first at ID magazine and, and throughout the sort of 80s and 90s and now the people who are the art directors of big magazines. Um, and I think, you know, it seems quite obvious that we all perfectly happy falling in love with each other, whatever shape, size, physicality, race, etc. we are. You know, those are, those are just natural human things so we can look at, our, look at each other and think we're beautiful. So I think the person we're looking at is beautiful and desire them. And it isn't because they have a symmetrical face or because they're you know uh, one particular ethnicity or one particular age you fall in love with people because they're people um and often you fall in love with people because of their imperfections so i think that there was there's an aesthetic um narrowness um or there was an aesthetic mm-hmm. narrowness in fashion that really was not coming from anywhere good at all and not a, re- a reflection of, of of really how to to encourage people to want to have things and I think for far too long, fashion was in the hands of, of um, a very, very narrow-minded set of people who really didn't see beyond that. Um, and I think it's, you know, the situation that we're in now, which is a whole sort of, you know, it has become fashionable, and I say that in a positive way, not in a negative way, to want to have diversity, to want to have a, a much wider selection of people represented within fashion industry. I fought for that all the way through my career. It's always something Well, you can't just be fighting for it. Or yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when the only person that they want to regularly have on the front cover of Vogue magazine just happens to be a white girl uh, with blonde hair, you know, blue eyes, no offence. Um, they're all lovely, but, yeah, whatever. Only, well, my point is, when the person they want is always exactly the same, and there's no variation, they're always sized, whatever it is, nothing. So were you suggesting other types of models, and they were saying no? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd fight all the time, not just for Vogue magazine. Vogue magazine occasionally would let me do things. Um, but for certainly for, for big perfume ads, it was so racist and absolutely, um, totally bigoted, uh, you know the, the the fashion industry and and the perfume industry, cosmetics industry, dreadfully racist. Until a penny dropped and they worked out they could make tons more money if they appealed to a wider, wider range of range of people. Yeah. And actually, you know, a lot of women are not that shape and do not want to be that shape. And if you can say to them that actually that different being a different shape is great, they'll buy more of your product. So in the end, sadly, it's business that kind of um, secures the sort of desire to have a different uh, a different uh, a way of looking at the world. So. Yeah, I felt very, very strongly and still feel very, very strongly. What about um, nature? Because I know you did a project with David Chipperfield, who you already mentioned, yeah. 
<coughs> the architect for your home, and you did a big project with him, which I think lasted 15 years. Nature, I guess, has always been uh, an important part of my life. And I remember my father walking me through um, woodlands near our house and pointing out all the different flowers and the different types of tree and the birds and knowing all the names for every different um, piece of flora and fauna we came across. Um, so it's always been part, and I grew up a lot in the countryside. I mean, it's a kind of mixture, to be honest. I grew up a little bit half in the city and a lot of the time in the countryside, which is good and bad. So flowers and flora and fauna have always been interesting, exciting to me. The project you referred to with David Chipperfield was one that I did. Um, he asked me, and again, it was a time where I was getting a little bit despondent about fashion. Beginning of the 90s, and I had my first, um, well, Charlotte and I were having our first child, Emily. I think it's about 1993. Um, and it felt that those were real values, things that felt real to me. And I, I, I was questioning the, the ability for fashion to really um, provide any any real fulfillment for me. Um, and I think you do get a little bit despondent at times when you have to work in fashion. Um, and when you find it, it's full of values which are very dubious. Um, and I think I was looking for something that felt more real. I was more looking for possibilities to photograph, you know, a minor coming off, off shift or a heroin addict or things that are in the world around us. And I was watching the news coming in every day. I can't remember what earth was going in 1993. But, you know, the politics and the news have always also been really important. I found there was no place in the fashion I was doing. And then David Chipperfield, the architect, asked me to do a project with the Natural History Museum called Plant Power, which is man's relationship to plants or human's relationship to plants. So we, managed, we, we picked 18 different plants and related them to history and to, to current affairs and to uh, the humankind, um, which is a fantastic project and very fulfilling. As I say, at the time of having my first child, um, I felt very much that this was, you know, these were values that, uh, that I wanted to be a part of, and fashion just wasn't providing that for me. Um, being asked to photograph um, things which didn't seem to have any real basis in, in life. And it's very hard to watch the news and you see what is going on and whatever it was at the time, you know, and feel that then you go out and create a sort of image of of a sort of you know aspirational piece of clothing that everybody should buy. It just doesn't feel. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it makes sense. But I think that's humour. I think the, the sort of you know the, the, we're not good as artists unless we're super self-critical. Um, I think a real artist should not acknowledge their audience, but they should acknowledge their own desires. It's the primary reasons to work. Um, so yes, so I guess one of my biggest inspirations always is nature, and I've been photographing roses almost ever since. Um, and I started photographing roses, which I have roses in my garden. And I, uh, weekends during growing season, I will go out and cut a bloom or two or three and put it in the vase, put it on my kitchen table. And then with my iPhone, I will sit there for three, four, five hours and photograph it. Um, and I have hundreds and hundreds of pictures of which are all weirdly very different one from another, but nobody else can tell the difference, but I can see, um, which is the sort of um, strange thing about um, how one creates work you can tell the subtle differences that nobody else can possibly ever see. But for me, they're incredibly important. So I sit there for four or five hours photographing a rose and trying to make it sing um, and trying to make the image melodic and harmonic. Um, the funny thing is that um, I purposely and naturally would describe uh, visual things in terms of audio description. So I'll say I'll make it sing or make it harmonic or melodic. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is synesthesia. I've never really professed to be synesthetic. Um, which is a sort of mix up of the senses, like things like when people taste colour or that sort of thing. Um, but I, I guess that I probably am, because that's part of my makeup. 
Um, I'm pretty certain I'm probably probably dyslexic, um, although I have no never. I grew up in the 1970s when nobody was dyslexic and nobody got tested yeah. for it. And you just you were thick, and that was it. Uh, you didn't fit into school, and you weren't um, very good. So um, I was never tested for it. Um, but I, I suspect I probably am. But for me, the, 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 to be able to make an image that I feel satisfaction from, it has to feel harmonious, melodic. And I wait for that sound. I wait for that. I try and create that sound. So in the hundreds of pictures I take of the same rose bloom, um, only one will be finely tuned to make the right melody for me or the right harmony for me. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. And so, yes, I'm becoming... And I post them on Instagram. And I've been doing stuff for about five, six years now. And the funny thing is, as I said, you shouldn't really acknowledge your audience as an artist. I mean, it's not really what one's supposed to do or is beneficial to do. But the joy of new media, which is before you would put a picture in a magazine and you'd hear nothing and then no idea whether we'd seen it or not. Um, don't believe any letter was written to the magazine. The letters page, the editor wrote them all. Yeah. Um, but now the way that people can comment does mean the audience becomes part of your work. Um, and the Roses from My Garden series, which I've done, as I say, for five or six years now, become a, a, an instant way because they just literally, I photograph them on my iPhone and then put them through Instagram filters and then publish them so they're not being worked on by anybody else. It was the rest of my career. Um, I'm always working with other people and loving working with other people. But this is solitary. This is myself and there's nobody else really part of the process. I'm not having to provide any, um, you know, not, not having to... to to, to try and understand anybody else's desires. This is just about what I'm finding. The, the, you know, the roses from my garden started as a very simple expression of my love, my passion, my desire, my joy, etc. Seen through these flowers that remind me of feathers and paintbrush strokes and couture dresses, etc., etc., etc. But become, in a way, symbolic of where image making is now and where I've argued for a long time that we shouldn't say we're photographers anymore. Because it really what we do, you, know, you can't say I'm a photographer and I use AI. You know, that makes you into something else. And then, you know, the images I do now could equally be printed out as, as 3D objects as they could be as photographs. So I work outside of the parameters that define photography. So really calling myself a photographer would be totally limiting um, in what, I'm, what I'd actually do. Um, so I don't call myself a photographer. I call myself an image maker. And all that. that might sound pretentious. It's just to really offer a kind of better version an understanding of what I actually do mm. rather than the idea that I'm like like Minor White or um, Ouija or Avedon or whatever who work with very much within the kind of parameters of define photography. The medium I use, the skill set I use, the craft I do now is something, it's not photography, it's mm. image making. That makes sense. All right, well, Nick Knight, thank you. Image maker, <laughs> thank you very much. My pleasure. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.